Hello everyone, I'm Dana Stewart Bullock and this is Transformational Therapeutics. In today's podcast, I will be talking about shame. I will of course define it, and today I will use definitions from multiple sources, as this is such a huge topic. In researching the definition of shame, I came up with multiple roots, from Old English, Old High German, and Old Norse. So it is a widespread phenomenon. In all of these, it encompassed disgrace. So I looked that up. Shame and disgrace are almost synonymous, with disgrace meaning, quote, a state of being out of favor, close quote. But it also has the meaning of falling out of God's favor. In any case, in modern therapeutic terms, it refers to an inner sense of being completely diminished or insufficient as a person. That comes from therapists Fossum and Mason. Shame is about humiliation and the feeling of worthlessness. Because shame affects all of us and is such a huge topic, today's podcast will be the first of two on the subject of shame. So welcome. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I am really, oddly enough, looking forward to this episode on shame because I've been studying this subject a lot myself, and I'm really curious to hear your perspective on it and how it translates to transformational therapeutics. Well, it's actually at some point I may get to talking about it may be the actual origin of this whole model, but that's down the line. Mm. Before we start, I'd like to dedicate this episode to my brother, who suffered such shame so early in life that his shame tanks overflowed all his life until he drank himself to death a month before his 56th birthday. And the shame tanks are something that Robert Bly, he just died recently, a writer and a poet talked about that we all have tanks as children that can become overflowing if there's too much shame that is put into us. So I wanted to dedicate this to my brother. So I'm going to start off with the definition of shame. And shame is a feeling of guilt or disgrace or confusion. And for me, disgrace, dis means the opposite of grace. I thought that was really interesting. It, it, And it originally came from the root to cover. And oftentimes we cover ourselves when we're ashamed. I mean, just historically. Absolutely. In many ways than literal. And I think I'm going to continue with other definitions of shame because there is a pair of family therapists and they wrote a book on shame. Their name was Fossum and Mason. Their definition of shame refers to humiliation so painful, an embarrassment so deep, and a sense of being so completely diminished that one feels that he or she will disappear into a pile of ashes. So shame involves the entire self and self-worth as a human being. And for me, my definition of shame, which came many years ago, was not feeling safe in my own physiology. And then Fossum and Mason also talked about the feeling of, and I just know this so well, I would like to drop through a trap door right now and disappear. Mm. When shame hits me, it's like you just want to evaporate, just get away. I love the combination of all those definitions you just shared, being that shame is an emotion that is 
perhaps one of the most painful emotions we experience. And I, I think all of the words that you described described them beautifully and really depicted the, the experience of shame. One that I often find, which I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, that a lot of people with the topic shame comes up and it's like, oh, I don't have shame. And to me, I find that it we all do. We just haven't dug into it yet because it's an experience that's so painful. And I think much of it, when it remains over time, starts very early in life, very early. And so it becomes really a part of our physiology. And another um, description is that shame is an inner sense of being completely diminished or insufficient as a person. Hmm. So if I see that in someone, then to me, that's obviously there's shame underlying it. It is the self judging the self. For sure. And that explains how it's almost like a fish being in water, not knowing that right. they're in water. It's right. so just as absorbed in every bit of you. You don't even, you can't even see it. Yeah. And inherent in it is the ongoing premise that one is fundamentally bad, inadequate, defective, we're not fully valid as a human being. And I think I'll just do an aside here in this time. We talk about cancel culture and canceling people. And I think that is an externalization of someone's shame. If you have the need to delete someone, then that is you using your shame on someone else. So you cannot tell me there's not shame there. Absolutely. Well, in the feeling of shame, we then shame others. There's a, a woman, her name is Tova Klein. She's a PhD psychologist. And she works at Barnard and she talks about children. She talks about how you shame your children. And it's so subtle. I think many people don't realize it. When Robert Bly talked about shame tanks, I think how much of the shame is carried depends on how much is countered in healthy relationship in other areas of your life. So, for instance, uh, Tova Klein talks about shaming children, and she says something like, when they put a shirt on inside out and you say, it's inside out, that's how you make them unsafe in their physiology, because their pride of accomplishment, which is a normal reaction to the accomplishment, gets blown away by you, the parent, and the parent is in such a position of power to a little kid. So the act of putting the shirt on gets negated by saying you put it on backwards or inside out. And that is devastating because as a child developmentally to master that skill of putting a shirt on, that's a big deal. That's so true. It's so subtle, but so powerful when you really break it down. It is so subtle and it can be so repetitive. And when parents are busy, you know, in this day and age and they can't be bothered, and it, I mean, that's where the seeds are planted. Right. If the first thing that a parent acknowledges when they see their child is something they've done wrong and always acknowledges it in that way, rather than addressing the behavior, but just saying that it's just a repeating process. Another way, and I saw this a number of times and I experienced it, is when a child, for instance, reaches for the mother and the mother turns away. That is such a denial of the self. How so? Because a baby, a child, depends on the mother for its understanding of itself. And it's the mother's job to help regulate the child through its development until it can do it on its own. Children don't really differentiate themselves from their mothers for a while. In terms of a couple of years or so, they don't separate themselves. And so you're disempowering a child who is reaching for its nourishment 
I'm using that metaphorically for the mother, symbolically what the mother means. And if the mother turns away repeatedly, I mean, once is okay, but repeatedly, the child learns that it's not even worth its mother's attention. Mm-hmm. And its sense of self is, is obliterated. Sure. And on the, on the flip side, I could imagine that if a child reached out for their mother and their mother responded, then that like creates a positive, empowering feedback loop of, oh, I have this desire for nourishment and then I receive it. It creates a powerful feedback loop when it, whereas when it's denied. And that feedback loop is your brain wiring, and that's really important. So when, when, when a mother turns away from the child repeatedly, then that wiring is, I'm worthless. And that will manifest later on. Could it also represent that I have no power as well? To the child. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Totally powerless. In a situation where they're already powerless. You know, Mm -hmm. we're born, many people talk about humans being born too early. You know, other animals, a horse has a baby and the horse is, the baby's up and running around almost immediately. But humans take years to be able to function on their own. And they're totally dependent on their parents in infancy. And it's really incumbent upon the parent to empower the child in a way that will form a self in that child. So the child is in many ways, and I I use the word self, capital S-E-L-F, not the ego self, but the essence of who you be. To empower that in another being is a huge task, but it's also a huge honor to be able to do that. That's a beautiful way to see that. Because I think if you're listening to this and you're a parent, you might be listening to this and also simultaneously fearing that you're damaging your child beyond belief and maybe perhaps even overwhelmed at the idea of, oh, no, I'm doing so much wrong and probably feeling some shame in that, too. Like, would you have any words of wisdom to kind of take it? Like, I love that. Well, I've always said that the most important thing between a parent and a child is to maintain the connection. And I don't mean a negative connection, but if you've made a mistake, A, acknowledging it is brilliant, and the truth is brilliant. I, as long as you're willing to be there with your child, there's hope. There is hope for healing. But if you cut that off, then you lose the hope. And I thought this was interesting. I'm not sure where this quote came from, but it is, anger is the emotion. Shame is the judgment. Mm, I need to think about that one for a moment. I need to let that sink in. Can you talk it out a little bit? Anger is an emotion. I mean, that's a given. But when you judge your anger or someone judges it for you as an adult, but also mostly as a child, then that turns into shame. Um, yeah. And so if I reach for my mother and she disappears, I'm angry. But then either she judge or I take it as judgment that I'm not worth being responded to. That's mm. the shame. Mm. It's very subtle, but I think it's really important. It's so fascinating. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine just yesterday about this very topic, how she was talking about how she felt angry and then was feeling ashamed about it and was thinking about back as a kid, if she felt angry, then she would get reprimanded, like, don't be angry, rather than it's okay to be angry. What's not okay is to do this behavior. But we we were talking about how that link between the judgment of the anger then created the shame. So, so fascinating to think about that conversation in this context. Now it makes so much more sense. So I'm going to also talk about um, Alice Miller, the woman who wrote The Drama of the Gifted Child. 
and Robert Bly, who wrote a whole book called The Seven Sources of Shame. And it's, it's really quite wonderful. But shame is, is a family dynamic, and it's very tightly associated with addiction. So, for instance, what we are addicted to is not the substance. It's the shame or the judgment or the I can't between the dosages. Hmm. So what I'm doing is I'm using a substance to assuage the feeling that I have of shame or judgment. And keep it at bay for that moment. But then the in-between taking in that substance, you're filled with the, I'm not, I'm not allowed. I can't, I can't have this. Yes. And so you're actually addicted to the feeling huh. and, and the substance reduces the addiction to the feeling. It doesn't work, but it, it's, that's, you're trying to numb whatever that feeling is instead of, you know, I've talked about this in the past. So you were saying that it doesn't work, that it, it makes the addiction better, but it doesn't actually work. I don't think it actually um, processes and clears the shame. And many people aren't capable of actually doing that. That may just be, you know, a 12-step program may be the right thing for them. But just understanding that you're not addicted to the substance, you're addicted to the emotion. Right. And the substance makes the emotion feel better for the moment, but then it probably makes it come back tenfold after. Right. And creates a stronger feedback loop for the need right. of the judgment. Exactly. Because I think shame has a lot to do with feeling safe in your own physiology. And that means you're wiring in your brain, that you're safe in yourself, in your own body. I read an article in the New York Times. Masha Gessen is a reporter who is Russian and came here from Russia, I think in 2013. And this is a quote of hers. And she's not talking about shame. She's talking about Russia and her escape to the United States. She said, quote, other descriptors emerged, a sense of safety, a sense of familiarity, a sense of inhabiting space with certainty, a sense indeed of the certainty of that space, the opposite feeling of having the rug pulled out from under your feet, close quote. So when I spoke earlier about just wanting to sink into a hole when shame comes, it's similar to having the rug pulled out from under your feet. And metaphorically, it's falling. It's your body collapsing and falling and wanting to not be there. And that is a powerful internal signal that most people may not even realize is there and it may only come up in certain situations, but it's toxic over time. When I listened to Masha Gessen say that, it really mirrored my description of shame. The, the lack of safety, the lack of certainty in your space, which is actually in your physiology, and having the rug pulled out from under you. And for me, the true antidote to shame, and this is a very superficial, this podcast will be a superficial study of shame. We'll go deeper in another one. But for me, pride is the antidote to shame. For sure. And I don't mean arrogant pride. I mean pride based on a sense of well-being, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of being worthy in the world. And lack of self-worth is really a form of shame. Absolutely. So you have talked to me about Brene Brown, mm -hmm. and her definition of shame is the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging. And it requires secrecy, silence, and judgment to grow, and it shapes everything. And you once said to me, one of the ways of changing shame is talking about it, but... She, Brene Brown, talks about... Um, 
that if if you don't talk about shame and you keep it hidden, it like it grows like it's in a petri dish and it just festers and grows and gets bigger and bigger. But the way to get to the point of releasing it is to share it with someone who's earned the right to hear it, which is so important. And in the the book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she goes into different relationships and different examples of people that if you were to share your shame with, it could make it bigger versus by choosing someone who's earned the right to hear it that will just be there with you through it and not judge it further, then it can have a chance to really release and process. Very interesting because we did a podcast, it hasn't been published yet, on grief. And I think shame and grief are tightly wound together. Mm, And I think that in our culture, we're ashamed to show our grief. And other people, they say to us, you know, get over it, or you've grieved enough, and that sort of thing. But as you're talking, and I say it in the podcast, that the best way to deal with someone else's grief is just to say, I am so sorry, and then be present. And that would be very similar to what somebody who was describing their shame would need. Presence without any judgment, without any interference with what they were saying or experiencing. Absolutely. Right, just being met. Because you have to be so safe in order to be vulnerable enough to talk about what you're ashamed of. Right. And it will not feel safe in the act of vulnerability, but by choosing a relationship, choosing a person who's earned the right to hear it implies that there's a level of safety there. There's a container that allows you to become vulnerable enough. And that requires experience because I really believe that all learning is is experiential. And if you've not experienced that safety in your own physiology or in your external world, to experience it over time is where learning happens but you have to experience it and you will have been very vulnerable to risk it. So to take that kind of risk and have someone who is not present and has not earned the trust can do real damage. Right, and it's interesting because I I tend to see it that at first, if we haven't experienced it, then we will continue to attract people in our lives that will duplicate the experience of shaming, getting the shame worse, making it bigger. And I mean, even just thinking back in my own relationships, the earlier relationships were filled with that. And then as time went on, then I started finding safer relationships. And that goes right to Alice Miller's repetition compulsion, which I will talk about in a bit. Oh, perfect. But first, I'd like to quote Brene Brown. And she said, people with a sense of worthiness and strong sense of love and belonging can be vulnerable. The one variable between people with a strong sense of belonging and ones who struggle is that people who have the strong sense of love and belonging believe they are worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they are worthy. The one thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we are not worthy of connection. And so being shamed early on It's within a relationship, it destroys the connection, and so you experience a destruction of connection that is so, when you're young, that is so threatening that you will not risk that again in the future. But Alice Miller, she lays this out in the drama of the gifted child. She says, in effect, that when you were born, you brought to your parents a fantastic gift. You brought a vibrant, extravagant, excitable, noisy, many-sided nature with you from eons of vegetable life, reptile life, mammal life, lion life, hunter life, aboriginal life, 
All of it lived before your human birth. You brought it all and gave it to your parents as a gift, and they didn't want it. This rejection was deep before you were two. It became clear to you that your parents did not want the wide range of energy that you were so proud of. They said, can't you be quiet? Why won't you be a nice boy like the others? Alice Miller remarks that given our helplessness, we decided to compromise. We figured out what kind of child they wanted and we created a false self to please them. And she says that we betray ourselves at that time and we do it in order to survive. But we are deeply shamed by that betrayal every day. And so it helped us survive, but it actually fed the shame because we weren't worthy of our parents' love. And she talks about betraying our deepest nature by creating the false self when we were a child. But she also talks about going through the grief of letting go of that image of yourself, hmm. releasing it. That's so powerful. That story is one that just speaks so deeply. And it really describes so beautifully the ways that we can internalize the limiting beliefs about ourselves and about our world to survive that then stay with us through adulthood and live in our subconscious that we then use transformational therapeutics to help us unearth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so Robert Bly wrote this book on shame. And what he said, which I thought was fascinating, that he equated shame with an enchantment. Ooh, tell me more. Well, the definition of enchantment is a feeling of great pleasure, a state of being under a spell, so in many ways, it's, it's almost like a spell or a curse, I think, that is, is put upon you at a young age, and you buy into it. You internalize that parental judgment or whatever. And he talks about seven ways parents can shame their children. And the first one is intentional shaming, when the parent says you ought to be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and when we're young, we believe what the grown-ups say. He, this is where he says we store our shame in shame tanks, which are very small when we are young. The next way is shame through silent response. Like a child asks a parent for a response and doesn't get it. Mm. Like you bring a, a, a drawing to your father and say, what do you think of this? And he doesn't reply. So in, internally, the child will think if I were an adequate person, I would not, not have to be to ask for this response. Right. And if I were an adequate person, he would have given it. Right. And that's sort of irrefutable logic. He talks about inherited shame. It's like secrets at family secrets. You know, the, the grandparent who was insane or the aunt who had a child out of wedlock or the kid who was, had Down syndrome and was put in an institution and nobody talks about it. So that is also a form of shame. Shame is the shame in the not talking. Yeah. Like if this were, if I were of worth, then I would be allowed to hear it or we'd be allowed to share it. Well, and oftentimes it's it, the silence of the parents. It's like kids know. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, aunt so-and-so, like what happened? And nobody talks about it. And that automatically makes it taboo. Right. And taboos can be shameful. That makes sense. Thank you. Another one is shaming through events, like a child flunks a grade or fails a test, and his worth, 
that he learns from his parents is how well he does in school. And he may actually be dyslexic or have some problem and not even realize it, but his worth in his family is about succeeding in school. And when he doesn't succeed, his worth plummets. Another one in our culture that's hugely apparent is an imperfect body. Never mind just those of us who are healthy and women in particular, but also handicapped people. And we're so body oriented and beauty oriented and our definitions of beauty are very limited. And so when you don't measure up to that, there's a huge amount of shame that can be internalized. Absolutely. And then there's maintained shame, which is you've been shamed well enough by other people, let's say by adolescence, you've internalized it and you just maintain it yourself. You know, I come from a family of alcoholics. There's a lot of shame in that. You don't talk about it in our culture. Right. Alice Miller, she wrote a book called The Body Never Lies. And Bessel van der Kolk wrote a book, The Body Keeps the Score. Again, I go back to the body itself, the anatomy and the physiology really being the anchor. And the body never lies. The body makes sense. It's just whether or not we can make sense of our own bodies. And so because of where I come from and and the work that I do, I think the anatomy and the physiology, it never lies. And so I use that as an anchor And the physiology and the science of the body, it just is. And so are you saying that kind of to bring it around full circle back to transformational therapeutics, we talk so much about the body and the physiology and how the physiology doesn't lie and the body doesn't lie. So how is shame stored in the body? Well, it goes back to my definition that I'm not safe in my own physiology. My body, the anxiety is produced when I'm asked something that is shameful, even though I don't know it's shameful. It manifests as anxiety and fear and panic in my body, which has to have come from very early because it's so pre-verbal. Mm-hmm. And that, that feeling of wanting to sink into the floor and not be seen and that feeling of hiding is indicative of some early shame that was inflicted on me. I have a quote here from somebody by the name of Gilligan, but I can't say that I know where it came from. (laughs) But the quote is, all violence is an attempt to replace shame with (laughs) self-esteem. And so I go again to this culture in this moment and the, the way people try to cancel other people means to me that they feel canceled themselves. And that there's so much shame inside that it's like, spewing out of them onto others. others yeah and they're so not acknowledging it and owning it right uh brooke castillo the owner of the life coach school she talks about shame and abuse and violence as as that that it's almost like that if violence were put upon you it's like uh their shame was so big that it spewed out onto you and so your work is to not then think that you you need to heal yourself because you're broken, but instead you need to gather up their shame and put it back on them. Say like, oh, some of this got on me. Here you go. Back to you. Well, I'll tell you a story about that, a personal story. When I was redoing my kitchen and I was looking for countertops and I went all over the place and I was stressed out beyond belief and I returned to a place that had countertop soapstone that had the soapstone that I wanted. And I wanted to make sure it was the right size and color and whatever. And so I went back to this place and asked to see their huge slabs that are outside. 
and I think it was winter time. And there was a woman there who had helped me previously. And I, granted, I was in a very stressed out mode, but I asked her to look at it look at them. And she said, well, we have to pull them out and the guys are busy. And she just gave me a really hard time and you don't need to see them. You've seen them already. And I was thinking, well, I've, I'm going to pay a lot of money for this. Why shouldn't I see them? And, and she was giving me a hard time and I felt awful. And I'm standing there and I'm with her outside and, and she's telling me I don't need to see it. And I'm watching myself thinking, I didn't feel like this when I walked in. Why do I feel like this? I feel awful. And I turned to her because she was a service provider, and I was going to spend a lot of money. And I just looked at her and I said, shame on you. And when I said that, I felt a total release in my body. And she started crying and got absolutely hysterical. Hmm. And that to me was evidence of she was carrying some kind of shame that she was projecting onto me in that moment. And I refused to take it. And I put it back. I mean, she got literally hysterical what do you mean shame on me? And, and she was crying and screaming. And I just thought as I'm a service provider, and I would never say things like that to anybody. It's not very humane. It was a way of realizing that when I walked into the establishment, I had a certain state. And it changed when she started telling me what I could and couldn't do. On some unconscious level, I must have known it was shame because it was like shame on you for treating me like this. I didn't do anything. And so I gave it back to her, and she absolutely fell apart. I thought it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's the only time I've ever done that. Wow. And I wanted to just talk quickly about the difference between shame and guilt. Mm -hmm. Guilt is considered developmentally more mature, and it's a feeling of regret one has about behavior. It doesn't reflect directly on somebody's identity or diminish their sense of worth. A person with guilt might say, I feel awful seeing that I did something which violated my values. Or I feel sorry about the consequences of my behavior. So while guilt is a painful feeling of regret, shame is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. Right. The possibility of repair exists with guilt because you've done something wrong and you can repair it. But it seems to be impossible to the shamed person because it's not a behavioral infraction, it's an identity. Right. So there's no repair because my identity is so worthless. Right. I personally think it can all be changed. And I think really being able to differentiate what I feel guilty about versus what I am ashamed of then allows me, just language-wise, to start looking at the two things separately, understanding where shame comes from, and challenging myself to change it, you know, one step at a time. Mm. Yeah, Brene Brown uses the phrases that shame is, or uses the phrases guilt is I did something bad versus shame is I am bad. And, uh, and just thinking about all the examples you've shared in this episode about the different ways that parents can shame us and, and everything, it really does seem, it makes so much sense why a child would walk away from those interactions believing that it's them that is the problem. But then looking at it through an adult's eyes and also seeing it from the parent's eyes that it wasn't necessarily their intention the majority of the time. So how can you, or seeing those two truths, 
seeing that it was a almost a story that was created is and a, the language piece that was created that then was driving us like how how can we tap into transformational therapeutics to start seeing shame differently seeing the way we speak about ourselves the way we speak about our behaviors differently well i i think the language is so important so really identifying whether or not you are carrying shame and i think we all are me too so that sort of is a given and then watching your behavior. If you're canceling someone else, it means that you were canceled somewhere along the line. Hmm. And so you're projecting it on, onto someone else what you yourself have not yet resolved. Particularly in this day and age in the internet, it's why would somebody saying something a million miles away have any impact on you? Right. I mean, like, who right, when you really it's think not about like it, you're being threatened. <laughs> like, it, it's so bizarre to me. Yeah. Um, and I might have a reaction, but that's my reaction. It doesn't mean I have to strike out at somebody who's on a screen in front of me. Mm. I think the really important thing, and you taught me this, the most important thing is to find someone who has earned the right to hear you. And that can be very difficult if you've been shamed early on and you have no sense of self-worth. And I've spent many years finding people who are not safe and when you've been shamed very young, you don't always know what safe is. So it's, it, it's a road to travel. And I think it's one where it's so endemic in our society, and I don't think we even acknowledge it. Right. And yet it's spewing everywhere if right. you just look around. Right. Well, by its very nature, by its very, very definition, through everything we've been talking about this entire episode, the nature of shame is to hide from it, to shut away from it. So, of course, it's spewing everywhere, but we're not even aware of it. Um, the two therapists, the family therapists, Fossum and Mason, in the beginning of their book, they talk about a mythic monster called shame. And they say, few people in our culture have escaped this creature whose claws can lock us in a frozen state and devour our ability to verbalize. And its invisibility is powerful. Something that isn't seen is really powerful. It's like you said with the fish in the water. It's all they know or all we know. But to know that we all have shame and that it influences us throughout our lives and to start looking for it. And it's hidden and drives us from our unconscious and yet can be transformed. And I think that every time we're not willing to appropriately, be appropriately vulnerable in a relationship, then that's shame's head, the mythic monster coming up. And, and I think the most important thing is to talk about and just be honest. Yeah. The body requires truth. It really does. Mm. The body requires truth. I love that. So, so it sounds to me that the, the first step with really working on releasing shame is, A, identifying that it, it might be with you. And through using all the tools and just listening to this episode is one way to start seeing your experiences, seeing your language, seeing your feelings through this lens. And if you ever have like a, a, a sinking feeling, that's mm. oftentimes can be identified as shame. Right. Yeah, for me, I, I feel the a huge clenching in my solar plexus and a desire to just curl, curl in up. and vanish. Yeah. And that now... 
after studying that, then I can, I some, a lot of times will feel that before I even register that there's shame present. I feel the stomach clenching in and then I get curious like, oh, is there shame here? Oh, you know, it's really is. interesting, Rebecca, because that's actually how the body works. The, the physiology arises and then we put a label on it. Mm. And so people think that things start in our brains, but it's actually the opposite. It's like the physiology arises and we label it. Mm. So you're actually feeling it and then labeling it properly will give you access to changing it. Mm. So that is, would you say that that's step two or three? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, first, there has to be willingness to, to really address your self-worth. And we tend to superficially think that worth has to do with the size of our house or their income. or But internally, what is your sense of your own worth? And how does it manifest in your relationships? I, 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 what I found in the yoga and meditation world and going to workshops and retreats and all the things there would be so many times where I would feel like I was the only one who felt unworthy. And then everyone else would say the exact same thing. And I just throughout the years have just seen like, wait a second, I think this is something that is so painful that we're so ashamed of that we don't want to vocalize. But yet when we do, we realize that everyone feels that same way. And vocalization is an actual way of releasing things, particularly if you, again, you have a safe place to vocalize. Right. And identify, to honestly identify what, what the feeling is right. and talk about it. It's a way of externalizing it and getting acknowledgement from other beings. I mean, we're all so isolated in our own shame. Shame is very isolating. And it's so physiological. Right. So I think talking about it is a way of transforming it, calling it what it is, mm -hmm. and, and that will help clear it out of your system over time yeah and being honest i mean being really deeply honest about what you feel worthy of and not worthy of and and if you don't know look at your life you know look at your relationships how nourishing are they how how much work are you doing compared to the other person you know what's the balance that sort of thing right and it, and it's it's hard it's difficult to look at it it is and when we're living more in the superficial, we might all all assume, oh, yeah, no, I, I don't have any worthy issues. <laughs> I think I'm worthy. I'm fine with that. I don't need to go there. But then when you start digging a little layer under, a little layer deeper, a little layer deeper, then you hit that nerve and, and might find a, a feeling of unworthiness. And, and you can that. know, take this to the bank. If you have the need to denigrate somebody else, then you're not feeling so good about yourself. That's a given. Also, if you feel a need to denigrate yourself, I mean, by the definition, but if you find yourself, uh, this is how I discovered the shame personally was I would beat myself out all the time. There's always self-judgment present in my mind, 100% of the time. And remember, anger is the emotion, but judgment is the shame. Right. So perhaps it's a way in. Any judgment we have of ourselves is, is, a, is a flag that there's shame underneath. Ooh, that's a good one too. Do you, would you have any tips or tools to help you move through the discomfort of the shame or the discomfort of looking inward in the if someone's listening to this being like okay i'm i'm ready like i really want to do this work but honestly I, i'm not sure how to even take that first step of leaning in and looking a layer deeper 
Well, it takes me back to the addiction. I think it's really important to understand that what we're addicted to is the shame. And we can call that an emotion or a judgment of an emotion. It's probably more a judgment of an emotion, but it's internal. And the compulsion to suppress it is what causes the addiction. So to actually start to feel it can be very uncomfortable. It's like diving into a black hole. Mm. But if you really want to heal, I don't know any other way to do it but to dive in. Right, right. And and find people who will support you. And to be honest, we're all, I haven't talked about this much, but for me, emotional honesty is the most important thing in the world. And people are emotionally so dishonest. And to say, honestly, what the feeling is mm-hmm. and, and not judge it. It's okay. Right. So using, would you say, perhaps going into the observer mode to help you dive in to that black hole, like to observe your experience, to get curious, to dissect the language. Like, is there anything, any of those, any of the transformational therapeutics tools? Well, there are, there are a few things. One is if you're judging yourself, that right there is an indication that there is shame. Two is if you have that sinking feeling If you feel like the rug's been pulled out from under you, that sort of thing, if you just want to sink into the ground, that's an indication of shame. And I think shame pervades everything, so it's hard to really tease it out. So you have to start somewhere. Right. Just just acknowledge that we all have it. And what's the impact on us? How hard are we working to prove ourselves? You know, we weren't born to prove ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so if we're working that hard, then there's a lot of shame underneath it. For me personally, I always find the moment before I go into the feeling of shame, it feels the most agonizing and terrifying. But then the moment I decide to jump into that pool, to use that same analogy, it is incredibly uncomfortable. It can be very painful as well, but there's also a level of relief there that's coupled with it. And then as a little bit of time passes, sometimes even just a split second, other times longer, then there's far more relief and clarity that comes after. So just saying this, that there's, I I mean, we've been, we've been hinting at this throughout this entire episode, but there's so much value in moving through the shame instead of keeping it inside and letting it grow. There's so much more freedom available to you and more safety available to you in your body, more freedom and connection available to you in your relationships, if you're willing to go in, right? Like, would you have any other thoughts to add to that? I think probably the most important thing is is to decide whether or not you're worth going after it, going after your own worth. So so to go to go into shame, you have to feel that you're worth changing that. How do you do that if you don't feel worthy? Sometimes you just have to impose it from the outside and say, I'm going for this. Hmm. I'm just going to do it. I mean, another way to look at it is if you looked at yourself as a child, would you say to your child, you're not worth it? Hmm. And if you would say that, then fine, you're not. But but <laughs> if you would want to give your child, sort of your inner child, the sense of worth and that you really care about them, then do it that way. Go in that way. Fight for that inner child in you by going after the shame and changing it. Yes, I love that. That's a way in. That's a beautiful way in. Well, thank you so much, Dana. I think this episode is everything. I think thank it's you, so important. And, and at some future date, we'll dive even deeper. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll float on the edge of the pool today. <laughs>
If this episode was valuable to you and you could think of a, of a friend or a loved one who you know that maybe you have a relationship that you, you thought of when we talked about the person that's earned the right to hear it, send this episode to them. Get them on the same page as well. Perhaps create an even stronger, safer container with this knowledge if you both have it. And see what can happen. See what kinds of, um, what kinds of connections you can create by sharing this episode. <laughs>